Hey everybody, it's me, Matt Tinning. And Niels Rosenbaum. He's a duck. And he's a cop. Look at that. You nailed we did it. it. We you did it. We rehearsed that. Beautifully. So, are you ready for the questions? Yes. All right. And if you guys are listening, this is Ask a Doc, Ask a Cop. The first question we have in is from Charles in Sarasota, Florida. Is that right? Sarasota? I guess there's probably more than one Sarasota. Well, I have no clue how to pronounce Sarasota. Is what no, I, I think you did it's it right. Florida. So, this one I'm curious about. Okay. Um, and this is related to you. How often should you see a doctor? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I don't know the exact um, recommendations. Usually it's once a year. Um, it depends on your age and your general health. You know, I was just reading a, a book about this where it said where the, the, this person was very against doctors. and She was very okay. rational and well thought out is that you shouldn't go looking for problems is basically what she was saying. So if you're that's perfectly fine... Yeah. People get a little hung up on screening tests, and I think screening tests can be very important, and I think you should do them. But then again, the problem with screening tests is if you take enough of them, you're going to find something positive. So right. there's sort of two schools of thought. One is you know take the very bare minimum screening test, like a cholesterol test, something that will inform you somewhat. Uh, but you know, if people had access to all the tests that they wanted and you went in for a full MRI scan, you're probably going to find some little abnormality and it's going to freak you out. And, and then there'll be more tests. And, and, more. and it's, it's actually normal to have abnormal findings. So if you go huh. to the doctor, if they do enough tests on you, some of them are going to be abnormal. And right. then what do you do? You follow up with more tests and then you worry. And you have fret. all that stress. So, so it's normal to be abnormal. Yeah. I like that. Yes, because if you test enough things, because the, the, the norms are just based on populations. You know, the right. taller bell curve. So most people fit within this range, but some healthy people are outside of that Where range. Where are these populations? They're human populations, <laughs> Thank you. <Matt>. But like, <laughs> well, thank you, Dr. Obvious here. But no, like, do you do, are these population studies like regional, country-based? It depends what, what the study is done. They're done all over the place. But the, these studies are generally – the labs set up parameters right. on how to do the test. And then they they check those against you know the literature to find out what the cutoff is before you're um, you know, sick. And a lot of these things are just based on um, expert opinion sometimes. And they do – like the most common screening test you're going to see, which I think is valuable, is blood pressure. Okay. So blood pressure has a, a large range. And where does it become pathological and where is it normal? And what is pathological? Pathological means that it, it's causing sickness. Okay. It's a problem. And so um, if your blood pressure is high, is that just because you're at the doctor's and you're nervous? Is it because you're, huh. you know, you're not, the cuff isn't yeah. the right size or it's too high or too low or the machine is broken? I, I worked at the psychiatrist. Uh, is I worked doing. at a hospital. I won't say which one, <laughs> but I worked at a hospital somewhere in the United States where the machine was broken, but all the nurses just kept taking blood pressures and everybody was hypertensive. Like everybody was about <laughs> 10 to 15 above normal. How would you? So if your let's say your blood yeah. pressure is usually like one twenty over eighty five, if you'd gone to this hospital, it would have been like one thirty five over ninety. It's just like I mean, did someone? And so I just started it ignoring or? it. I was like, every not everybody can be <laughs> hypertensive. It's like the machine is broken. How often do they actually? I mean, 
<laughs> yeah, I don't know if you even know this, yeah, but bit. how often do they actually test machines in hospitals like that? Not often enough. And this was a well-respected hospital. Yeah, I, but I mean, and so I have to break? take you know, the blood pressure on my own for some of these patients that was way high. Like, this is really bad. And then it was just normal. It was just kind of high. Yeah. So, but blood pressure is a screening test and you're screening for, uh, you know, a marker of um, cardiovascular um, disease, okay. essentially. But even that is very tricky. So where is the cutoff and right. which day are you taking it? And then so what you have to do is you sort of average it over time and you take it correctly and you take it at home and then you look at all the averages and then they compare that to studies where they do studies on that. Okay. So people with this disease have this type of blood pressure or people with this type of blood pressure tend to have more strokes and there's a correlation all right. and there's also a causation. Yeah. So um, that's how they set them. They just say it's there's not like a perfect cutoff. You're now sick. It's just based on, you know, the averages in the population. So some people can have super high blood pressure and be okay, But we treat everybody who has very high blood pressure. But anyway, to go back to the story (laughs) of this, this one woman was saying, you know, once you're old enough to die, why even go to the doctor? Which is sort of interesting. And what she was, is old she was an editor. Die. She was an editor. And one of the things she used to edit was um, the, the obituaries. And so, you know, when writing an obituary, if someone is 35 and they die, they're not old enough to die and you have to give an explanation. They died in a motor vehicle accident. They died of cancer. Okay. But if someone is 85, they died of natural causes. And that's fine, right? Right. So they're old enough to die. And so her idea is okay. once you're old enough to die – don't go looking for problems. Just live your life. True. Just try to live. And happily. if something, you know, if you have pain or something's bad happening, then go to the doctor. What age do you think is old enough to die? Gosh, in today's society, like probably eighty or above is when. If I were reading the obituary, I wouldn't say, "Oh God, that's really young." Eighty, yeah. It's a good life to yeah, eighty. Eighty's not bad, right? I hope I live to eighty. My dad lived to eighty. I don't think any men in my family have ever lived really? to eighty. Well, you got to pack in all the good years, Matt. You could be the one. You I could, could be, be the outlier. Wait, are you telling me that this is my age? I'm at the age of dying. You're <laughs> no longer going to die. You're like, well, what's your age, You've Matt? It's it. that age for you. For you, it's that age. <laughs> I've reached it. Matt I'm, died of natural causes. I'm no home. longer going. <laughs> oh, that's so scary. But, but that's like your primary care doctor is what yeah. you're saying? I would say as a rule of thumb, once a year, once every other year, you should probably go to a doctor. Even if you're feeling good, just, hey, I'm checking in. Yeah. And you have no pre-existing medical conditions. If you're totally fine and you're young, yeah, once every couple of years. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know what the current recommendations are. So it's, I would. Who makes the recommendations? I'm assuming like insurance the, um, companies. Probably insurance companies because they want you to go enough so that they save money. Right. Look at you. No, but that's you true. Sound, who do you work for now? The insurance company. <laughs> we were actually saving money by you <laughs> you paying for these services. But that's the idea. But that's also a problem because if the insurance company is making the recommendations, that might save them money across the population. So they might catch a cancer early enough to fix that one in 10,000 cancer, which will save them a lot of money. But the odds of you having that cancer and being screened and saved, pretty low. Pretty low. That's, yeah, what a lovely topic. Yeah. <laughs> Thank the you next question. Sarasota. Yeah, the next question is good. Um, it's a little happier, okay. hopefully, but okay. it depends on what we choose here. This was from um, Sarah in Toronto. 
which I was just recently Toronto with some, is Canada. Yeah, I was just wow. recently with some Ottawa folks that that do not like Toronto. Oh, Apparently, yeah. that's the big city. So you would it's like, like it. New York. Yeah. yeah. So you'd be like, yeah, that's the greatest city ever. But everyone else hates it because they're like, it's the greatest city ever. It's like, <laughs> I can see that. You are like New York you're is the, the only really yeah, good see? city in America. You're the American Toron- Torontian. How, are Torontonian? There, no, that's not right. Torontian? The Torontians are like New Yorkers. Oh, <laughs> big city versus big city. Oh, gosh. All right, is there a All question? Right, yes. So they're asking for both of us to answer this. What movie closest represents being a cop and or being a doctor? What movie? Yeah, I guess or TV. Or TV. You have it. Okay, movie or TV. What You start. What movie or TV most? Man, I don't. I got a question for yeah. you. You know the show that I always thought, I don't know if they still, God, I can't even remember the name of the show. It was an old TV show where there were cops and they, they basically just sat around the office most of the day, like doing paperwork. What? I, I'll have to think about it. It'll come to me later. <laughs> Is this like Dragnet? No, no. It'll come to me. It's an old show from like the 70s. And it was a TV show? Yeah, yeah. Is that what you're saying is the most like it is? Barney or something like that? Barney? Is that the name? Well, Barney, Barney? like a uh, black and white one? Yeah. What was oh, that my show God. Called? Why can I think See, of that? See, now you're thinking. Anyway, what show? Oh, well, that's going to drive me nuts. What? I would say, you know, the closest in movies, I was thinking about this because I always think um, The End of Watch. Okay, that's a good movie. That it's not. I mean, it's Hollywood, so some of the yeah. like, fight scenes and car chases are extravagant. But the characters, like okay. how they represent, were very accurate to field officers. Okay, in what way? I would say just their characteristics, like how they talked, how they wore their sunglasses. Okay, how one of them dipped tobacco uh-huh. and used it the same way. The types of sunglasses they wore. So it's just sort of that attitude they captured very and, well. Yes. Okay. So like. The Hispanic cop wore his sunglasses one way, which is very similar out here, okay. versus the white cop wore a different way. Because it was L.A., right? Right. Interesting. And their language, their demeanor with each other. Okay. It was, it was just very accurate to that okay. part of it. But I mean, like... Sort of the banter in the back yes. and forth. And the camaraderie, but, I think, is yes, what they really we captured well in that movie. But was um, a sense of being part of a family. Right. But it wasn't so much like, you're not chasing people with... with uh, golden guns like there's all these gold-plated guns and all this mafia and... you don't do that no we don't do that andy griffin show andy no, griffin. <laughs> that's what it is i had to look it up no <laughs> i'm thinking of a different one that I'm was sorry. with barney but, though was that with barney Barney fife is in that one. Oh, barney fife that's right if i ever think of that show i'll let you know <laughs> the other show that i thought is very accurate that people always make fun of me for saying it was is super troopers Oh, yeah, I still haven't seen that. So, I mean, it's far-fetched. Like, no, cops aren't doing drugs on, you know, and taking calls. Are they not? <laughs> they better not be. <laughs> but some of the stuff, like, the impractical, like, the jokes that they play on each other okay. is very, I would say, common. Okay. So the jokes and just kind like, of... Like, what's uh, an example of one you can remember? Well, <laughs> hopefully now cops don't do this. Okay. So hopefully. <laughs> but they would do things of, like, hey, I bet you can't say meow a person like you pull someone over okay like i bet you can't say meow five times okay meow, meow and so meow, like meow. and so like he walked over like meow you know why i'm stopping you meow uh, like just <laughs> like imp- like just jokes. oh oh, oh like, that, the, 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 the cop is supposed yes. to say meow five times while talking, while talking to, this to the person. driver I thought you meant yeah. the cop no. says to the person say meow no <laughs> i was like that's <laughs> so weird now. 
No, but it, it's just interesting because it's, you know, people are like, cops aren't really like that. I'm like, yeah, they always like are playing jokes with each other. We're normal people. Okay. All right. And the, yeah. And then the other one that I would say is the most accurate is Die Hard. <laughs> I mean, clearly it's just, just. I thought that was a documentary. It is a documentary. So, I mean, it's very accurate. <laughs> Die Hard. It's the best Christmas what... movie ever. Are there movies that people think are realistic and then you're like, no. I don't so know. Much. Like, I, I remember, like, people, um, like, Training Day, and then what's that one that was, like, in Boston and everyone dies? Oh. And I just know Dropkick Oh, Murphy's, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. The, um, the Departed. The, that's a good movie. So it's a good movie, but, and one, I've never done undercover work, both of that's it, but that's pretty extreme. A little over the top, yeah. Yeah. That was, it was good, though. Right. It's good. It was based but, on a movie out of Hong Kong. Was so it maybe really? that's what they do in Hong Kong. Maybe. Kind of undercover <laughs> work. It's true. I can't speak about international undercover work. But yeah, those ones are pretty extreme. You ever watch uh, Law and Order? Yes. So what do you think? I think that seems pretty good to me. I mean, it, every story is so dramatic with twists and turns. Right. But the sort of feel of it seems pretty close to me. Yeah. It's, I mean, I wish that they would actually have them doing the paperwork so you could see how much paperwork is when you're <laughs> investigating those crimes. But for the most part, like they interview people. The one thing that's very far fetched is detectives aren't chasing bad guys like that. Like I oh, feel yeah, like every no. time they're like, "Oh, let's go talk to this person," and someone takes off running. That never. It's not that oh, common. Okay. Yeah, yeah, people yeah, run from that. uniformed officers. Like if they have a warrant, oh, I see. not just some like you Random would know. Detective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They like ask happen. one question and then they start running. Right. So yeah. every episode, <laughs> someone runs. I'm like, that just doesn't happen. Okay. And the fact that they solve things so easily. That doesn't happen. Oh, either. and everything is solved and everybody confesses. Right. But, you know, the psychiatrists, how they're portrayed in there is pretty accurate. <laughs> I think all psychiatrists are Matt evil. Matt knows that I hate the way psychiatrists <laughs> are portrayed in that show. They're all evil. Right. All all doctors are sort of arrogant a-holes. Yes, I would agree. And <laughs> Is this a statement? Show, oh, okay. In that show. And then the worst of all are the psychiatrists. With uh -huh. the one exception is they usually have their own psychiatrists. Right. Who they just kind of make fun of and be like, thanks a lot, Doc, for telling me nothing. <laughs> right. Right. But they, at least they treat him nicely. Right. But, but he's useless. But one thing that I, you know, I haven't seen in a while, but when the last time I saw it, they were kind of using actual like social events. Okay. So they were tying in some things that were happening oh, in yeah, the yeah, news, yeah, yeah. which I was like, that's kind of nice. Interesting. So they're right? talking about how to like, how they would do investigations on that. The other thing I always like is if they go to investigate somebody, like, do you remember where you were 10 years ago? And do you have the receipts yes. from that day? Oh, yeah, right here right behind here. the counter. <laughs> in my do not go to jail file. I knew this would come in handy. Yeah. There, but, I mean, there's all kinds of bizarre Barney ones. Miller. Is that it? Barney that Miller. Show? Am I completely Is, all if, over the If place? I look up Barney Miller and it's the dinosaur, I'd be quite upset. <laughs> I'm trying so to. Barney Miller is you ever a. See, wait, uh, that is the actual show. Have you ever seen it? No. In that show, they sit around and like do paperwork all day, and they're all kind of disgruntled. If the, I mean, that would probably be more realistic of detective. Have you ever work. seen Brooklyn Nine Nine? Yes. What do you think of that? I think it's hilarious. I think it's really funny <laughs> yeah. too. Okay. I think. Have you seen the one where they're like uh, doing the lineup? They're like, probably. well, I would recognize this voice, and so he's like, "Can everyone sing the Backstreet Boys?" Oh yeah, they all start like, singing. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't. I wanted to watch more of it. I haven't seen much of it. I though. think in in a weird way that does capture some of the cop life because it always is the main places in the precinct. 
Yeah. And they're always just kind of standing around and discussing kind of politics and who's nice to who and what is the captain thinking? Because, right. you know, cops are just like people. They just kind of sit around and talk about their job and is it going well and who's <laughs> being true. mean to whom. That's and, very you know, true. And, and that show sort of captures that. They are all they have a lot of camaraderie, but they also kind of make fun of each other. They right. goof around, you know, but when the work comes, they do it. Have you ever, it's obviously over yeah. the top, too. But. Have you ever seen the movie <laughs> Hot Fuzz? I I think I have seen it. So it was like uh, it's in Europe. Right? Yes. Okay. So that movie was very far fetched, but the very end was very accurate. It's the only movie I've ever Which seen. Which part was the accurate? so the end is like after they you know Hollywoodize it and destroy everything. They're uh-huh. doing paperwork. <laughs> okay. And they're like this sucks, and I'm like that's very accurate. <laughs> if you were like driving and drive through lawns and knock down houses, it's a lot stuff, of paperwork. It's a lot of paperwork. That's funny. You I mean, know, that's paperwork is not interesting for a TV or movie. Right. But they don't even, like, allude to it that much. I'm looking up other cop movies to see. what it, Have you ever seen Rush Hour? Yeah. Do you think that's related to cop work at all? <laughs> no. I don't either. Lethal Weapon? No. No. It's pretty far The controlled so. fall. Let's jump together. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Yeah, a lot of these... Uh, Police Academy? Police Academy is funny, though. Yeah. It's, like, to the extreme. RoboCop? RoboCop is another documentary. Yeah. That's definitely a documentary. We're not allowed to tell you where the actual cop is <laughs> for safety reasons. What about Bad Boys? Oh, I haven't seen that. You haven't seen Bad Boys? Is it good? I love I've that seen parts movie. Of it. I mean, that's what I that's what I imagine police work to be like. Seriously? Yeah. I was like, it better be like this. <laughs> I better be able to drive cool cars, have wicked cool names. Yeah, that's it. Was must like be very that. disappointed. Yeah. Every now and then, I just kind of stand, hoping the like wind hits me right for a good <laughs> shot. It's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't realize it until I just looked at movies with cops just to see. There's uh-huh. a lot of cop movies. Oh, there are a lot of cop movies. There are a lot of doctor movies and doctor TV shows, too. Yeah, you I would say there's the, a ton of doctor TV shows. you ever seen shows. the TV show Scrubs? Yes. That one is actually not, in a way, it's one of the more accurate ones. Really? It just, it's a lot of tedium, and they show them sort of drawing blood and like being tired all the time. Of course, they spend much more time with the patients than they do in reality. You know, in these TV shows, the doctors form these close bonds with their patients. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen very often. A-holes. But the idea of like, and what I like about that show, it, it does this, but not as much as all the other doctor shows. The doctor shows, it's always about some courageous doctor either fighting the system right. or finding that really rare diagnosis that only they can find. It's yeah. like, yeah, you read about those things in books, but they just, they're rare. That's why they don't happen <laughs> It just very doesn't often. happen. But Scrubs is not quite as hung up on that. What about like, what was the big one? Um, ER was the biggest ER. one ever. So ER accurate is actually not one accurate. of the, I, I, for its time, it was one of the most accurate. But then again, it's all over the top, and every right. illness is super interesting and has twists and turns. You know, it's a TV show. But the setting and the, the attitude and, and sort of the hierarchy was much better uh, portrayed in that movie than any other – that TV show. Like the attending is the boss, and then there's the resident, and then there's the medical student. Like we used to explain to people where we are in our training, but like, haven't you seen ER? I'm kind of like this guy. He's an intern. You know, interesting. Um, I remember though watching it once, and uh, one of the main characters he put his stethoscope in backwards. Did he really? <laughs> yeah. So the the ear holes were pointing the wrong way. 
Probably no one even caught that. No, it would funny. only be you. It was a very that. satisfying catch. <laughs> These are not like doing like a needle the opposite way. Like what? <laughs> what about then? So you were saying like the weird one of catching weird illnesses. So like house, I feel like that's yeah, all that house. show is. That it's house like, is all about catching. The wherever weird. that magical hospital is, whatever yeah. land that is in, that yeah. is the strangest illnesses everywhere. It's like a beautiful hospital where they catch the strangest illnesses. It's just not accurate at all. My wife is all watching um, The Night Shift now. I haven't seen that. Is that good? I don't. It's. I can barely watch TV these days. But it's like The Night Shift. I feel like it's all doctors that were in the military. It's filmed here. Okay. It's actually filmed here. But it's like all ex-military doctors that now work in an ER. Never heard of it. So it's strange and it like blends military with, with doctors and stuff. Oh, The Fugitive. The Fugitive? Yeah. Accurate of doctors, no, you know, being he, chased by cops. It was actually accurate because there's only one scene where he's like doing doctory stuff. Yeah. And he's in the hospital, but he's pretending not to be who he is because he's being hunted. Right. But he is able to slip through security very easily. Hospital security has gotten better, but it's still not that good. And back when that movie was made, there was basically no security. So it would be easy to just like walk around and pretend to be a doctor. Right. Even when I was in medical school, there was a case of a person just stealing babies. Like you just walk in and you say, Oh, isn't that a cute baby? It's <laughs> mine now. Pretty much. And so they beeped up the security. It was very hard to get in and out of the neonatal ward. Right. But that wasn't the case 20 years ago. Anybody could just kind of walk in and take That is baby. terrifying. So like he was able to, and what was also accurate, it was very disorganized and everybody was kind of like overwhelmed and he was able to look at that x-ray and there was a misdiagnosis. That stuff I could see actually happening. So in a way, that one had some weird. The one brief medical yeah. scene in it. It's the most accurate. What about Patch Adams? Patch Adams is absurd. Isn't that a real doctor, though? Yeah, but the way they portrayed it was just so over the top and ridiculous. You're telling me that doctors don't really care about their patients like Patch Adams You know do? what I thought was actually one of the best portrayals of a psychiatrist was, um, what's that movie? Not, not Terms of Endearment. Uh, God, it'll come to me. Oh, my God. It was with... Uh, well, it was a very good movie. <laughs> It'll come <laughs> to me. Such a great movie. It's just, it sticks in my head all the time. Um, the Sixth Sense? No, The Sixth Sense, there was a doctor. In yeah, wasn't he a psychiatrist? Yeah, no, he was a psychologist. Same difference, though. <laughs> but in a patient killed him or something? I think um, Good Will Hunting. Oh, yeah. That was a pretty good per- portrayal of I a forgot about that. Um, because, you know, he was human. Again, it's also over the top and the very dramatic scene where it's not your fault. It's not right. your fault. I mean, give me a break. But it's a movie. And so that's okay. And there are usually, there are often emotive moments in therapy, but it's usually not that hackneyed. Um, so that was a good one. Um, I'm trying to think what other movies. Um, it really seems like it. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. That's pretty Makes good. Sense accurate? Yeah. That was an old movie, though. So he's not kind of stigmatizing? A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, just a tad. Yeah. yeah I feel cool. like, now that we're talking about it, I feel like there's more TV shows about doctors than there movies. Are, there are a lot of TV shows about doctors. There are a lot of movies about doctors, too. I think the interesting thing about psychiatry is the doctor is either usually either the hero 
like um, in in um, Goodwill Hunting, but right. more often they're the villain. Right, they're doing some kind of evil. Yeah, experiment like even Batman, or... the Scarecrow True. was a psychiatrist, or um, what's the the one where he eats people? You're talking about like Hannibal Lecter. Hannibal Lecter, he was a psychiatrist. Oh my gosh, he was. Yeah. So the, it's, it's not uncommon for those. I mean, because cops are usually sort of divided. You know, there's yeah, the good so cops and the, and bad, the bad cops, ones. and the good ones are fighting the bad ones. And but with movies, it's usually like there's one really evil Doctor, psychiatrist. Yeah. but there's not the good mind. psychiatrist. Yeah, there's usually not a there. good one, sort of as a counterweight. Um, yeah. Let's was see. there ever one movie that stood out and like that's why I want to be a doctor? For me, no, no. Um, I think the Book Awakenings was really a great one. That's a movie too, right? The The Man Who Mistook His uh, Wife for a Hat was actually one of my favorite books, and um, it's just neurology. Oliver Sacks writing about his weird neurologic patients and. They were so strange and interesting. I thought, oh, that'd be a cool thing to do. And I almost went into neurology. I was very really? close to going into neurology. Because neurology is nice. What was the turning point? The turning point, I think, was that neurology is a little bit less broad. Like with psychiatry, I can do what I'm doing here. As a neurologist, it would have been a bit of a stretch to be like, I work in the police department and I do home visits. You know, no one's going <laughs> right. to be like, that makes sense. Right. But you do it as a psychiatrist and it makes sense, right? I guess so, yeah. And so I, I feel like it opened more doors than neurology. You can um, do more community-based stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, and neurology, at the time at least, we used to call it diagnose and adios because we're neurologists love to diagnose. Like where is the lesion on, you know, where is the, the, the illness? You know, is it this nerve? Is it that nerve? And you can do all sorts of tests to really track where the nerves are because, you know, certain nerves control certain parts of your body and they crisscross and they do all these okay. weird things. And so you can say, oh, I know exactly where his cancer is, which yeah. you can do with a scan anyway. But it's sort of fun to diagnose. But then most of the treatments are like, yeah, I don't have much to do for you. You know, if really? you have Parkinson's, we can give you some dopamine. Everything else is steroids. So it was diagnosed and adios. You're like, yeah, you have this terrible illness. Good luck. Goodbye. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> like Alzheimer's is perfect. That's like the that most common. That would go common, to neurologists. Yeah. That's the most common neurodegenerative <laughs> disease in the world. Yeah. You have Alzheimer's. Bye. I mean, they give them medicine, but it doesn't really work. Oh, yeah. I would hate to do yeah. that. So psychiatry, as much as it doesn't work, works often better than neurology. I, I don't, this is morbid, but. We, we were at CIT International, okay. and someone was talking about the training, asking us training we do for non-law enforcement. Okay. And I was telling them all the different people that go through a class, and I mentioned our chaplain unit. Okay. And so they were talking about, oh, chaplains, what do you guys use them for? And I said, oh, they do different things. They help with death notifications. And they were talking about their agency, a supervisor is the only one that does death notifications. It's Ooh. like, oh, officers have to do that. So if you're in ours, like if an officer – you know, find someone that's deceased. We uh, are the ones that make the death notification. Oh, How does that work in the hospital? I doubt doctors do it. Is it a social worker sure. or? To make the death notification. I, I think it varies. I, I, I don't know what the protocol is exactly. I think the doctor can do it if they want to, or they can defer it to somebody else. I mean, you, you, often it's not a surprise. Somebody's right there at the bedside anyway. Right. I remember a close friend of mine who was an ER doctor. 
she had to tell, you know, she was working on somebody who came in, a young person, and uh, worked on him, worked on him, and he died, and he had to tell the wife. So, you know, she follows the textbook rules. You know, you don't say he passed on, he's in a better place. You know, he died. We, we tried to resuscitate him. We did this and this, but he's dead, and, you know, we're terribly sorry. And the person was in so much shock, she just looked back at her and said, oh, okay, when, when can he come home with us? We have to go have dinner. Oh. Yeah, just totally shut down. Totally oh. shut down to reality. So it, it's it's not a pleasant thing to have to tell people that. They're, oh, I hated it. Yeah. Because it, it's just so awkward. Yeah. But I guess for like, I guess in a hospital setting, they're in a hospital, so you can kind of go away. Yeah. We do it in people's homes. Ugh. So it's like an awkward okay, moment. Of, yeah. Like, you know, you tell them and people just, you know, they just well and they, you know, they're so overwhelmed with yeah, that. Yeah. And then, like, do you just you wait? Do you? Do not you guys wait? still do all the death notifications? Officers do, yeah. Do they really? I know a lot of places have social workers and chaplains and stuff do that. So I mean, now I think that's why they they've had the chaplains. But I think depending, you know, our chaplain service locally is volunteer. So okay. depending on how much they want to do, you know, all depends. And some people don't want a chaplain there. Okay, you know, it, yeah, that's true. If you're not religious, or right? I just remembered the movie where I think. This is one of the best portrayals of psychotherapy I've ever seen is Ordinary People. Ordinary People. It's I saw that on a movie. list here. It's a great movie. It's kind of old now, and it's it's a drama, but it's it's a very good movie about how mental illness impacts an ordinary family. I mean, they're wealthy, but other than that, they're just an ordinary so family. So what do you feel is, is accurate about the psychotherapy in it? I think it, if it you remember. portrays the therapist as a person. Okay. And not sort of a caricature, um, and I, I think he 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 listens and he interacts in a way that's believable, um, and he helps the person gain insight. But he's not overbearing, or it's not like it's not your fault, it's not your fault, and then everything's cured. It you know it, it, it's just more um, the dramatic moment is more believable. Right. Yeah. That's good. Ordinary people. It's funny and the hear. acting is stupendous, is it? Which means very good. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to find this list that I brought up. And number seventy on all-time movies of doctors is a movie called Speed Dating. It's <laughs> like so that seems real doctor right there. <laughs> Wherever this list came from, there must be at some point someone calls someone Doc or yeah. Doctor. Because also on here was Doc Holiday. Which is like the cowboy guy. Oh, that's like, ridiculous. that's not a doctor. That's not a doctor movie. It's like, you are talking about a Western now. What's very popular in our Grey's Anatomy is very popular. Or it was yeah, a while I ago. Don't... It's still on air, though. Is it? Yeah, I watched it for a little while, and it's just like, it just never ends. I wish it would just end. <laughs> I'm looking here. It looks like the ones on now is The Good Doctor. Have you heard never of that? Never seen it. That looks at a TV show. Code Black. I should watch some of these. You should have assigned these. I don't know. The Resident. Nothing. Nothing. Night shift. Nothing. Nothing. Chicago Med. Nope. Doctor so Foster. Lot of TVs. Looks like yeah. That's what I'm saying. There's a lot on here. Scrubs, but that's done with. But Doctor Strange. Doctor Strange is an excellent portrayal of a doctor because mm -hmm. he's got magic powers. Right? But I mean, you can read minds and stuff. So. But Doctor Strange Love. Have you ever seen that movie? <laughs> no. Is that an adult bomb. movie? No. Oh, is it really? The subtitle is How I Stop Worried. How I Stopped Worrying and Learned to Love the Bomb. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Here's one, and I forgot about. Okay. Have you seen Royal Pains? 
No. So Royal Pains was like. Oh, I've heard of it. I so it's like this doctor that I forgot where he's like either California or okay. you know some coastal place. Okay. And he just goes to like rich people, and okay. all the rich people have like these weird illnesses. And he's but he just yeah he's like in there he brings like literally his little doctor bag. Oh, he does everything. home visits. And, yeah. Or yeah. So and house calls. He, yeah. Does that is that real? My guess is, yeah, I, I would believe it. There's probably some smart, rich doctor who said, I'm not going to work in a hospital. I'm not going to work at a clinic. I'll just do, I'll cater to the ultra rich. Yeah, Sure, why not? Because I remember seeing that one and like, he'll go to people's houses and I think he had a nurse or an assistant that's that would draw the, blood and stuff. I'm like, does this really happen? But that's one of the ethical dilemmas in modern medicine is that there's becoming more and more of a two-tiered system. So if you have really good health insurance or you can pay out of pocket, they have these what are called boutique medical services where they do stuff like that. They'll make right. house calls. They're available all the time. They they have much smaller patient load, and they give each patient more attention and time and availability. But that helps just that small that, group of people. Right. They can afford it. Which is sad. Wow. How, what, the medicine I mean, is all effed up because, what, you know, I was just listening to this and reading that other book about, you know, People always want the highest level of care for their family, right? Right. You'll do like you might not go to yourself to the doctor, and you might not. You might blow That's off a, a lot of medical like advice, and I don't want to do this, and I don't want to do that, and just let me be in peace. But for your family members, you always I want the best, I want the most, I want the most expensive, and. One of the reasons is is because that's a way in our society to show that I care. I love you. I care. And this is the way that our society does it, which is not – which is But a, are you it, saying that is this different in other countries or other societies? I think so, yeah. And really? So it, it, it's so like I love you. You need to die. Don't go to the doctor. <laughs> yeah, but I mean some societies are less medically driven. Absolutely. I guess that's true. And so it, it's become a weird way to show love. Is I'm going to force as much medical stuff down your throat because, and it also shows to everybody else how much you care. I spent this much money and right. made this much effort to help my whatever, as opposed to spending extra time. Well, do with you them think or, that that's bad? I think Does it's it not. It's certainly not. A, it's not a good cost-effective way to to show love and compassion. There's got to be a better way. But the but unfortunately, the flip side is also true. If you don't take your your son, your daughter, your spouse, to the best medical, you're somehow bad. That's true. People yeah. think yeah. you don't care about your family. You don't care about your family. But if you try to explain to them, well, they they don't really want this treatment and they're okay with this, and we discussed it. Like, and well, why it. why wouldn't you just tell them? Yeah, that's exactly. that's exactly yeah. like. Well, they don't really want it. Like you need to you need to tell them about this exactly. stuff, though. You need to look for other options, especially someone say seventy five or plus, and they're like they have cancer, and they say they don't want to do the treatment. Well, don't you love them? Don't you want them right. to live? They could have extra years of life. This could be good years. I'm like that's not what they want. Yeah, that's. I'd rather just be with them for the last year that they have. Yeah, I think it's also tricky. Is it how much do you force on your loved ones? Yeah, I don't you know, know and. Yeah, I don't know. It's a tricky one. We do not know the answer. I, I believe you are, in fact, a psychiatrist, and you're supposed <laughs> to know, know all, all the answers answer. of the I'll brain have to read your mind and why now. people do things the things <laughs> they do, Nils. That is your responsibility. But that was the last question. Yeah. Well, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, thank you all. And please, if you guys have questions, send them to ask at gocit.org. Ask, A-S-K. 
ampersand, not ampersand, the little at signal. What yeah. is that called? Does that have a name? <laughs> I don't know. I know it's so, not ampersand, but ampersand is the end. So I don't ask know. at go c i t g o c like cat i like igloo yep. t. What is that in cop speak c i t? If you had to spell it out. Oh my gosh, Charlie. Yeah, it's Charlie Indigo Indigo Tom. That's what we say. Charlie Indigo Tom. So G O Charlie Indigo Tom. Okay. Dot org. Org. That's yeah. important. Dot org. So and that's you, the email yeah. that they would use to contact. Of course. So, and if you guys are enjoying this, other people would too. And an easy way to get the word out is leave us a review. You guys can leave us a review on yeah, Apple, on great. iTunes, on Google Play, on Stitcher, on any of that stuff. Please uh, share it, share the knowledge, and share what you guys are enjoying. And stay tuned. We'll be putting a didactic from the CIT Echo. And if you guys would Very like cool. to join, check out GoCIT.org for that as well. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. And then on that, we have a special guest, which is Dr. Lay. He is the director of New Mexico Solutions, and hopefully we'll have him back for some other interesting topics. But because it's Valentine's Day, he is a sexy sex therapist. And he is the author of some amazing books, and I'm going to mention the names because, like I told Jen, there's few times I can say this professionally, but uh, he authored the book, The Myth of Sex Addiction, Ethical Porn for Dicks, A Man's Guide to Responsible Viewing Plut. <laughs> you can't even say it. I can't even say it. I said dicks and porn. That's all I wanted to get on. <laughs> there you go, Matt. But anyway, on that, Dr. Lynn. So... Thanks for having me. Um, you know, with the last name Lay, I only had two options, right? I could be a sex doctor or a politician involved in a sex scandal. Um, I really looked closely at that one, but it's pretty clear Anthony Weiner holds the title. Um, I couldn't be. He, he continues to defend his title. Um, so uh, years ago, I actually started working with sex offenders and um, started in that work mostly just because there is always a need for that. There's not a lot of therapists that do that work. Um, my sole uh, kind of qualification for that work at the time was that I had a good poker face. And as people told me, some of the you know really intense and challenging sexual behaviors they'd engaged in, abusively, offensively, criminally, um, I was able to keep a poker face and, and, and deal effectively with the issues. Um, but over the over years, uh, what I saw was that more and more therapists were referring sexuality issues to me that weren't necessarily criminal, that weren't offending, but were just sexual behaviors that were somewhat outside the norm. Um, which now I come to realize that we in many ways don't really know what the norm is. There was a study in Quebec uh, that was published just about six months ago where they did a random sample of um, phone calls to people in Quebec um, asking, these were not patients, these were just random people from the phone book, asking if, these, if, if folks had ever fantasized or were interested in engaging in behaviors like exhibitionism, uh, frauderism, which is rubbing yourself up against somebody like in the subway, um, things like sadism or masochism, things like in Fifty Shades of Grey, etc. And they found out that 50% of the population were interested in these behaviors. 30% of them had engaged in them. So where we are now in, our, in the field of sexuality is really recognizing that many of the behaviors that we thought were really uncommon and rare and often unhealthy when it comes to sex are in fact incredibly common. 
that half of the general population have engaged in them. And then there are certain populations like, oh, I don't know, police officers, where we have high testosterone kinds of indicators, where we have people that are engaging in high aggressive kinds of behaviors, um, high energy, high dominance, and we see a lot of sexuality issues come along with those. Um, you know, what Matt didn't mention was for a while I was thinking about writing a, a, another book about police sexu sexuality. I was going to call it Blue Balls, <laughs> which I thought would just be awesome. But then I thought, you know, I don't, I don't want to get arrested every time a police officer pulls me over for speeding because I got him or her in trouble with their wife or husband. Um, but for a while, you know, I, I, I do. A, I'm the only board certified sex therapist in New Mexico. Um, and uh, I see lots and lots of patients from a wide stripe of kind of behaviors. People who've gotten in trouble for looking at porn, people who've gotten in trouble for um, sexual behaviors like infidelity, etc. And uh, what I see is that especially men in today's society have not really been um, encouraged to think about how they have made sexuality a healthy or a thoughtful kind of part of their life. Um, and one thing that happens, especially with men, is that men use sexuality as a form of coping for stress, for depression, for anxiety management, etc. And when guys are under stress, for instance, a good friend of mine, you know, was in, uh, I want to say Iraq, I, I'm pretty sure it was Iraq, it might have been Afghanistan, but he told me about guys in the foxhole um, that were just masturbating obsessively to pornography because it was one of the only ways they could kind of distract themselves from the very intense, challenging, life-threatening uh, situation that they were in in that theater. We see that a lot with, uh, with men today that have access to pornography online, on their phones. It's never more than a few moments away. And, uh, and we see it in, in guys especially that are in high stress, high anxiety positions. Police officers, and, and I am not by any way, shape or form saying that female police officers don't have some of their own kind of issues and, and unique kind of issues around these. But one of the things I've noticed as I work more and more with officers is uh, some, some struggles around dealing effectively with anxiety and stress um, and have noticed the ways in which the police community can have some of its own kind of sexual subculture, sexual, sexual issues. I know APD has a long history. Um, a few years ago, there were a lot of public scandals around um, infidelity. That is not uncommon around the country. Um, one of the things, you know, historically around the country is police officers struggling with sexuality issues um, as they uh, occur in civilians that they're interacting with. Um, several years ago, I interviewed an officer who on his very first night on the job, um, when he was not in, I guess, what do you call it, shadowing, when he was, when he was, when he was on his own, um, and uh, he was on graveyard shift, he walked into a 7-Eleven, and a young woman who was apparently a badge bunny, he didn't know that at the time, um, came up to him, introduced herself, and said, oh, I don't know you, I know all the officers, and uh, she arranged to meet him that night in the parking lot, and then she actually brought along her younger female cousin, and the two of them performed oral sex on him, and he walked into the job, you know, seeing that, experiencing that, and then 
as you might imagine, later he ended up in some work issues related to sexuality because he had never really been taught how to manage those issues. Um, we see a similar thing, interestingly, in female teachers, for instance, right now. Um, I don't know if you've kept track, but over the past few years, we are seeing lots and lots of female high school teachers that keep going to jail for having sex with these younger male um, high school students. And what is that about? In most cases, it is about the fact that these young women have never really been put in, enough, put in a situation where they were allowed to talk about those boundaries, where they were allowed to acknowledge the fact that um, it is normal and understandable in that situation to develop these kind of intimate, sexualized kinds of feelings, and they weren't ever offered the opportunity to then seek help in terms of managing it. That's one of the things that I think that we have the opportunity now to do um, in our society as we are becoming increasingly open around sexuality. Um, the internet revolution has really changed things for sexuality. It's one of the reasons why I wrote the book I did, Internet Porn or Ethical Porn for Dicks, because guys aren't having a conversation about how to use porn responsibly, how to use porn and not get in trouble for it. Um, and that's one of the conversations I think that we need to have. Conversations like this, um, dispelling potential myths that police officers might have around sexuality, like for instance, the idea that pornog watching pornography turns people into sex offenders or turns people into rapists. Um, there's really strong evidence demonstrating that increased access to pornography in societies actually decreases rates of sexual violence. If you think about it, that having access to pornography actually creates the likelihood that some men, maybe even most men, um, will be diverted from engaging in sexual violence if they have access to, an, to a legal, healthy, uh, less harmful outlet like pornography or even sex work. Um, the, uh, but within... Um, is that a question? I can't hear it. I think so. so I just want to remind everyone if you're logged on, it's star six to mute and unmute. Are you, uh, so, you so the, uh, no, Chris, that goes for oh, you. Are you on your phone? Yeah. Oh. Hey, Carvajal, just so you know, you're not muted. Um, so the, the, uh, <laughs> The issues that I think that we have today, you know, Sorry. Um, the popularity of Fifty Shades of Grey, which, you know, sold 100 million copies um, and is one of the most popular books in history, second to the Bible, um, has really reflected some incredibly significant changes in our society's attitude towards sexuality. So we are hearing and seeing much more public expressions of sexuality. Um, our society is becoming much more comfortable talking about sexuality than used to be incredibly private. That, that's a double-edged sword. <clears throat> it can lead to us uh, oftentimes believing that a lot more people are having sex than they are. Young people today are actually having less sex than they were in previous generations. And in fact, young teenagers are waiting more, longer now to have sex than before. The interesting thing is we have the generation now that was um, taught abstinence-only education. Basically, they were taught don't do it, and they were taught nothing about sexuality. And now when they engage in sexuality and sexual behavior, they have a lot of myths 
and uh, misconceptions about sexuality that end up getting them into trouble. Um, we also have uh, a significant attention towards rape now and a lot of dialogue around consent um, with now lots and lots of questions about what consent is. Um, in, uh, I think it was Ohio last year, a uh, state led with rape because his wife was in a nursing home. Um, she had early onset dementia. When she, he would go to visit her, she wanted to have sex with him and they would have sex. Her adult children believed that she wasn't capable of consenting to that, charged him with rape. He was ultimately found um, not guilty, but went through a trial. I went home and told my wife, if I'm ever in a nursing home like that, you can do whatever you want. Um, she put it in place to Yeah. Yeah. But, um, but in Canada, um, two years ago, the Supreme Court ruled on a case where a woman um, wanted her boyfriend to make her pass out during sex and then continue to have sex with her while she was passed out. They did. She later, they had a fight later. She, she then went to the police, filed charges, um, said it was rape. She then later tried to recant the charges. And in the Canadian um, system, you can't pull back or recant charges of rape because um, it's a way to protect victims from being forced into withdrawing the charges. The Supreme Court of Canada ultimately ruled on the case and said that once you are in a position where you cannot consent, prior consent doesn't count. Um, now that raises real questions for uh, those of us who are organ donors, because when, when you're in a position of not being able to consent to giving organs, then mm -hmm. that would invalidate that law or process. So all of these issues are really insignificant kind of uproar and challenges. And across the country, college campuses, including here at UNM, um, have some really significant struggles around <coughs> distinguishing um, what consent actually looks like. We, we would like to pretend that consent is a simple black and white yes, no concept. But when you have two people who are drinking, when you have people who are engaging in what I call varsity level sex, that they've never been taught how to negotiate or understand or manage, um, these things can get really, really confusing. Um, if you remember the old movie, Smoke It's In Your Eyes, uh, or the, the song, Smoke It's In Your Eyes by the Platters, it was 1950s. Um, doo-wop group, and uh, four, I guess, five African-American singers, three or four of them were African-American males, and they were arrested in L.A. because the four singers were caught in bed with two white women, and the singers were all charged with rape because the white women couldn't admit that they had wanted to have sex with these guys, and so then it, was in, it ended up being portrayed as rape. We have a lot of those social dynamics playing out today, um, and it brings in the police. It makes things very, very complicated for all of us. Um, and the struggle, I think, is how to negotiate this new world of sexuality, um, greater openness towards sexuality, greater openness towards discussing it. And then, of course, we've got all, as I've said, we've got police officers that have their own sexuality, um, whether they are potentially looking at porn um, while they're stressed out at work um, or whether they are uh, struggling with sexuality issues um, as the stress at work affects their sexuality at home with their, with their partners um, or raises the issues or struggles around infidelity. 
Um, so I can talk on and on and on, but those are some of the issues that I see on the table for you guys um, and gals, and, and it's the issues that I often struggle with. Any comments or questions? Don't forget it's star six to mute and unmute. I have a question. Sure. Sorry. Uh, Tasia with uh, CIU. Um, is there any that you've found any link between, like, for instance, some of like our sexual deviant behaviors, people that we come across? Is there any link between people watching like excessive amounts of porn and then needing to kind of like up the ante sexually, like where they were, sure. where vanilla sex right. doesn't right. kind of satiate them anymore and they have to keep doing? More stuff. So it's a good question. I mean, the um, and and this is this was in essence um, one of the central kind of approaches in my second book, which is about the the issue of sex addiction. Basically, what you're describing is the idea of, of tolerance. You know, when I was a kid and I first started drinking alcohol, not that I drank it away, but you know, I'm just saying, um, one beer would get me buzzed. Now. Uh, five or six beers, you know, will, will really get me to that same point because my body has developed increased tolerance over over the years. There is a lot of question as to whether sexuality works the same way. So I will openly share that when, again, when I was a teenager, I could look at the JCP, JCPenney lingerie section of the catalog and get turned on, um, and maybe even masturbate. Now, if I looked at that section of the catalog, if it even exists anymore. <laughs> Um, I might think, oh, yeah, that's something nice I might buy for my wife, but it's not going to turn me on. Is that because of increased tolerance to pornography and sexual arousal, or is it because of the way sexual, sexual development works, that over time our sexuality requires greater levels of stimulation and greater levels of novelty? That question has never really been answered. There is, for a lot of people, the belief that when you start looking at Playboy, like Ted Bundy, when Ted Bundy went to the death chair, um, right before he um, was executed, he told psychologist and minister James Dobson that it was pornography that had turned him into a rapist and a serial killer. Um, he had found Playboy magazine in the trash of his next door neighbors, and that was what started him down the road of becoming a killer. I've always asked, you know, what the hell were his neighbors doing? You know, <laughs> if that's what happened to him just from looking at their trash. Um, sexuality doesn't appear to be a slippery slope coated in KY, where you start in one vanilla place and end up in a crazy kind of place having sex with dogs or animals or kids or whatever. Um, there are some folks who argue that looking at too much pornography actually turns people gay with that same kind of argument, that it, it is the increased desire for taboo. People have different levels of sensation seeking where they they might be a motorcycle racer or a skydiver or I don't know a police officer um, and gravitate towards higher levels of stimulation. That tendency comes out in sexuality as well. Um, and the other thing is that now with the internet and with internet porn, People have access to a huge diversity and array of uh, 
sexual experiences and sexual stimuli, there are now lots and lots of people who find something online that really turns them on that they had no idea turned them on before they found it. So that there are lots of people who are like, oh yeah, that's gross. And then they see it and they're like, oh, it kind of turns me on, I'm into it. Why does that happen? We really don't know. Why do people have some of the sexual desires or fantasies that they do? It appears to be an interaction of a lot of things, their psychology, their biology, their history, um, leading to lots of things. There's, this, uh, there's a lovely book called um, Who's Been Sleeping in Your Head by a psychotherapist named Brett Carr. And he looks at thousands of sexual fantasies and desires. He tells a story of this one little Jewish grandma who the only way she could achieve orgasm was to sexually fantasize about being strapped to an examining table molested by Nazi doctors. She had watched her grandparents die in a concentration camp. So uh, that's a very gut-wrenching kind of fantasy. How did she end up with it? Why did she have that? Is it healthy or unhealthy? Are really individualized and complicated questions. What we see now, and this is a long answer to your good question, though, Tasia. What we do see is that there is a small group of men, roughly about 5% is what we estimate. About 5% of men who are already predisposed to engage in sexual violence. Those men, if those men watch, <coughs> it increases the rates of the risk of engaging in sexual violence. The thing is that the predictors of those men are things like antisocial personality, you know, um, hostile masculinity, viewing women as objects and things to be grabbed or taken or raped or whatever, um, substance use, which disinhibits them, um, isolation, and often poverty and mental health. So those risk factors are really significant. We can reduce the risk that these men will engage in sexual violence not by taking away porn or even changing the porn they watch, but by addressing those risk factors. Similarly, they've looked at uh, adolescents exposed to pornography, and there's an idea that if teenagers look at pornography again, that it will corrupt them, it will turn them into rapists, they won't want to get married. Um, in Utah, Texas right now, in Pennsylvania, um, even in the Republican National Convention, people are declaring pornography a public health crisis. What they're really saying is that there are teens who are engaging in inappropriate kind of sexual behaviors. In most cases, it is uh, in what the research demonstrates. It is family environment, education, health care, um, economics, issues of poverty that predict the main drivers for kids struggling. But instead of addressing those issues, we'd rather focus on pornography. It's not that pornography isn't a significant issue, but in, in my experience, it is overwhelmingly a symptom, not a cause. And that we can best change, change these issues for people, we can best address these issues for folks by addressing the causes. So most men that I work with that have gotten in trouble for pornography, whether it's at work or in their relationship, um, they are, as I said, they're using pornography as a way to turn off stress or manage uh, depression and anxiety. Um, because when you get turned on, those feelings go away. 
what we can do best is not tell the men to stop watching pornography, but instead help them to develop other strategies. So I teach guys to, you know, if you're at work, and you're really stressed out, and pornography is one of the ways that you can de-stress, you need some other ways to de-stress. I teach them to do things like Sudoku, um, to play crosswords, to come up with other strategies to manage those negative feelings so they don't lose their job. Thank you very much. Any other questions? Chris Carvajal, Real Retro Police. Hi, Chris. So, so I got a question in terms of uh, sexual predator. Um, there's always the concern that this is a secular, that it's a cycle of abuse that makes somebody a predator. Um, and I'm getting this a lot in my child abuse investigations. Um, what's, what's, you talked about early exposure to pornography. Um, is there anything that I can identify to, um, kind of dismiss whether it's a cycle of abuse rather than early exposure to pornography? Yeah, gosh, that's a really good and sophisticated question, Chris. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you follow the news, but uh, Jerry Sandusky um, with, was that Notre Dame? Uh, Penn State. Penn State, um, who previously went to jail for child porn and sexual abuse of kids. Now his adopted son has been arrested for abuse of, of sexual abuse of children. And it's pretty clear that, that, that the son had also been abused by Jerry Sandusky. There's a big question um, as to how much this cycles in that way. Having worked with offenders, what I can tell you is that all of them will tell you I was abused, and that's part of why I did it. As I work with those individuals, what I always say is understanding that about yourself helps you to understand how you came to be a person that made these choices, but it doesn't mean that that was the only choice that was available to you, and now you get to use that information <coughs> to understand how to make different or better choices in the future. The other thing that's very, very clear is that the majority of people who are who experience sexual abuse in childhood never go on to sexually abuse other people. Um, and why not? Those are the differences. Now, Chris, the thing that we can identify most clearly is that it is protective factors that prevent those kids from growing up to end up struggling with those issues as adults or perpetrating on other people. When I say protective factors, what do I mean? Well, a supportive family, getting access to therapy and support on those issues, getting education. Um, most sex offenders and perpetrators are incredibly sexually uneducated people. Um, the uh, getting access and support for treatment around post-traumatic symptoms, dealing with substance use issues, dealing with poverty. Here's the problem, is that while sexual abuse occurs across society, across many dem demographics and across many different groups, it is the folks who have the fewest protective factors who end up suffering the most. They're the ones at the highest risk. So as you're working with a family where there have been multiple generations of sexual abuse, where you are seeing that the parents don't have the emotional or social or cognitive kind of abilities to provide a healthy, safe, nurturing, 
environment for that kid to recover, those are the kids that are at risk. It's the, unfortunately, the people who are abused who can withstand it the most are oftentimes the ones who don't get abused. It is the kids who've already been victimized. It's the kids who are already socially isolated, the kids who are already, you know, emotionally vulnerable, for instance. I worked with a man in Colorado who um, was mentally retarded, but he had well over 150 victims. He was incredibly adept at picking out the kids that he could get away with abusing which were the isolated kids, the ones who would keep a secret, the kids who were hungry for attention, the kids who were emotionally struggling, the kids who were separated from the family, who didn't have grown-ups they could talk to, um, the kids who were themselves potentially emotionally or cognitively challenged. Those are the ones that un unfortunately experience the impact of this trauma the most and then go on. So Chris, again, long answer to your question, but the ones that you should be worried about are the ones not so much about the abuse, but do they have any other protective factors? Because it's the absence of protective factors that lead to that abuse going on and resulting in longer term impact. Ultimately, what I believe in, in my clinical work and around sexuality issues is that Sex and, and unfortunately even sexual abuse oftentimes is less important and significant than we believe it is. What is more important are the protective factors and that we as therapists, as doctors, as police officers, we can improve people's lives not so much often by preventing bad things happen, happening or by taking away bad things, but by building up protective factors, by getting kids to school, by helping families to get out of homelessness, by addressing substance use issues and mental health issues, because those are the things that increase the negative impact of these unfortunate events. With what Chris had mentioned, is there any kind of guidance that you can think of law enforcement where we could play a role in that if we come across a kid like that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, one of the things that victims of such abuse struggle with is always feeling as though it's their fault, that in some way, shape, or form, they caused this to happen. And unfortunately, perpetrators are very adept at implanting that belief in the kids because it's one of the ways that they, they make the kids keep it secret. So when officers, as they interact with these kids, um, can immediately start to, to start to support the message as much as possible, and I know that you guys have to be careful about investigations and everything else, but as much as, as you can support the idea that just because this happened to a kid doesn't mean that, th that this is a bad kid, doesn't mean that this is the future, that it's going to happen again, doesn't mean that any of this was, the, was their fault. Even when sometimes kids make immature, poor choices that put them at risk, that doesn't mean this event was their, their fault. Um, and I think that the more officers, societies, systems can support that, ultimately that actually helps to minimize some of that long-term damage of these, of these issues. Um, 
because then it, a it's easier for the kids to get help b it interrupts some of that cycle that chris is identifying because part of that cycle is i'm a bad person because this happened to me and because i'm a bad person then i'm going to behave in bad ways um, or do things that um, i wouldn't do otherwise and take it out on other people so I, I think that the more we we can support that message that you know what sometimes bad things happen to good people um, and it, it's not your fault um, is one effective way to start intervening in that cycle. And then I guess referring people to services, right? Like oh yeah, services. absolutely. Duh. I'm sorry that goes without saying. Thanks. Right. Um, whether it's mental health treatment, but housing things. Mm -hmm community education i mean any of these things i think law enforcement is in a perfect position if they are aware of the local resources to to send people in those directions totally. and that's and that's that's doing good that's doing that's helping to get at the problem and then and then connected to that is recognizing that these these issues oftentimes happen in a social context and so making sure that not just the kid is potentially referred to services but that the family as well i mean i can't i can't tell you how many victims i've seen who experience that kind of abuse from their um from their mom or dad's drug dealer for instance or from their mom, mom or dad's drug using friends that were coming in um to an environment where the parents weren't monitoring the kids or making sure the kids were safe and i say that not to say bad parents but to say that these are these are systemic issues and we can't intervene effectively just by treating the victim or just by treating the perpetrator so i have like two or three more minutes and then i have to go are there any other questions or comments Again, we're at star six to mute and unmute. Chris Hall, Real Retro Police again. Um, so with um, exposure to porn being more prevalent, um, can you just tell me or give an idea of what uh, normal sexual curiosity would be for a juvie, juvie on? Um... You know, Chris, when you and I were younger, I'm probably older than you, but we would get answers to questions about sex from our peers on the playground who didn't know any more than the rest of us, but they just made up the answers. Um, or we would sometimes find Playboy magazine out in the woods. Um, now kids have, yeah, and, and women make faces at this, but um, guys know that you found naked magazines in the woods or in the trash like Ted Bundy. I mean, it was just, it was like an Easter egg hunt for porn. Um, and I, I think it's kind of sad, actually, that generations of kids now are growing up without that experience. I mean, you know, it, it was, it, it was, you know, men are, are hunters and that taught us to hunt, right? Now these kids are not going to learn how to hunt. Um, just a Google hunt. They just the, search. Normal sexual curiosity I, is um, is something that, in a lot of ways, we don't know what that looks like. 
um, because we have suppressed and shamed it for so long. Kids don't ask questions because it's not safe to, or because asking those questions gets them labeled as a pervert. Um, the best way to prevent that, the best way to manage that is to give kids good education. The, uh, but we're not doing that. We're not, we're not provi providing kids adequate sex education. And so they go to porn to answer those questions. As I see youngsters, teenagers that are engaging in sexually developmentally kind of inappropriate behaviors, um, you know, it used to be that I would say, oh, you know, teenagers asking or engaging in group sex, engaging in um, uh, anal sex um, that are looking at engaging in more deviant kinds of sexual behaviors, um, like BDSM or whipping or tying somebody up, etc. I would say, oh, you know, that's developmentally inappropriate. Um, where did that come from? But now again, like with 50 shades of gray and with the conversations that our society is having, um, even during the presidential campaign around, you know, very fetishistic sexualized behaviors with urine and such, we, we don't know what normal is. What I think, again, is a more effective strategy is that, you know, I was a very nerdy, geeky kid who was finding, you know, 1950s sex manuals at antique stores and reading those because I didn't have access to anything else. Now kids have access to the porn, to internet porn with this huge diversity of material and opportunities and ideas and everything else. The protective factors are oftentimes the more important ones. Um, so that as you've got a juvenile delinquent um, who already has uh, social behaviors, antisocial kinds of behaviors, he's already engaging in substance abuse kinds of issues. He is, for instance, um, engaging in unhealthy relationships, and he doesn't have adequate relationships with grown-ups that he can go to to ask these questions. Those are the kids I, I worry about. One of the things I'm talking about a lot is um, helping kids to develop what I call sexual integrity. We don't talk about that enough. Um, originally, my new book was going to be called A Gentleman's Guide to Penis, but um, nobody, nobody was going to buy it because nobody really cares about being a gentleman. <laughs> I think that we can have those conversations with these, with these youngsters, with these young men, teaching them how to be what I call a man of honor um, and to include our sexuality as a part of that. You can still be kinky, you can still have a high sex drive, but you have to have thought about what that is for you and then how to translate it into a conscious kind of honorable life. Um, unfortunately, not a lot of guys have good role models for that we, because when guys talk about sexual behavior, we get in trouble. Um, the only time a guy's <coughs> oftentimes because becomes public is when we're in trouble. Uh, George Clooney is one of the few exceptions that I like to bring up. You know, he's a guy who was very sexual. He had lots of sexual relationships with lots of different women. He was intentionally not monogamous. He is now apparently married to twins on the way. But he was a guy that was showing to young men, hey, look, you can be a stud and still be a good guy and still be a gentleman.
That, I think, is one of the conversations that is lacking, that I think we as men, Chris, can help those young men develop better values. So instead of worrying about what it is they're looking about, looking at, what I think we can do better at is teach them values that will protect them from the negatives. Cool. So I have to run and get to Santa Fe. Thank you. This Thank has you. been delightful. Uh, I look forward to the opportunity to do it again. Yeah. Thank right. you. Cool. I am on Twitter. God help me is one of the easiest <laughs> ways to find me, Dr. David Lay. Um, and uh, I actually got a blue check recently. I'm, oh, I, I the am official. Verified. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a semi-sensational celebrity. Um, but on on Twitter is the easiest way to find me, and then all my books are on on Amazon.